based on a true story. In 1971, the Perrin family moved into their dream home. It's gonna be great. But they didn't know it was the site of a brutal murder and countless horrors. What happened to the family was so disturbing, they refused to speak of it until now. First day, the owner said, do your family a favor, keep the lights on at night. There was a heaviness and there was a scariness. Things began to happen. We started to see multiple spirits. Because I was the youngest, I was approached more than anyone. Well, we've been called ghost hunters, paranormal researchers. But we prefer to be known simply as Ed and Lorraine Warren. I'm Lorraine Warren, and uh, th this is my home. We've lived here, oh, I guess about 40 years now. <laughs> this is where everything started. Everything started about our work. Something awful happened here, Ed. What is it? Whatever Lorraine sees, feels, touches, it takes a toll on her. Little piece each time. It's been quite a career, and I'm still involved. I'm still involved with hauntings, you know, and helping people get through. It's a very delicate thing with certain people because they're very terrified and very frightened. But there's a lot of people that don't believe. You have a lot of spirits in here. But there's the one that I'm most worried about because it is so hateful. Okay, so let's go in. I'll show you the house. Hello and welcome to another week on the Beyond the Edge of Darkness podcast. I hope everyone is doing well. This week, we take a look at the paranormal case that inspired the first Conjuring movie. Personally, this movie is my favorite from the Conjuring universe. Let's go beyond the edge of darkness. story behind the movie franchise The Conjuring begins with a rural farmhouse in Rhode Island. Built in 1736, it has gone by many names over the years, including the Dexter Richardson House and the Old Brook Farm. When the Parent family purchased it in 1971, though, it was known as the Old Arnold Estate. In January 1971, Roger and Carolyn Perrin, along with their five daughters, Andrea, April, Christine, Cindy, and Nancy, moved into the old Arnold estate, located in the Rhode Island suburbs, a modest 14-room historic farmhouse situated on a 200-acre property. It seemed like an idyllic location to raise five children and the perfect place for an all-American family to live. At first, everything seemed great. 13-year-old Andrea, the eldest of the parent girls, had her own room while her sisters, 11-year-old Nancy and 10-year-old Christine, shared another. The two youngest girls, Cindy and April, also had another room to themselves. 
The house was big enough for all seven members of the parent family, providing ample space for the girls to play. However, even as their family settled into life at the old Arnold estate, Roger and Carolyn hadn't forgotten the final words of the man who had sold them the house. When dropping off the keys, he had mysteriously cautioned them to leave the lights on at night. Perhaps it had been a friendly warning from one neighbor to another. After all, America in the 1970s was rife with serial killers and gruesome crime sprees. But the man's sinister tone had sent chills down Roger and Carolyn's spines. And try as they might, they couldn't get his strange caution out of their minds. It wasn't long before several mysterious and unexplainable things started happening inside their home. The house itself creaked, slammed, and whispered. Carolyn also started noticing that things frequently went missing, with the broom seemingly moving by itself from place to place around the house. More than that, though, she heard scraping sounds against the kettle, despite the fact that no one was in the kitchen at the time. She would also find small piles of dirt in the center of the kitchen floor, even though it had been thoroughly cleaned only a few hours before. In an interview, Cindy Perrin, the second youngest daughter, said, things would either be moved all around in a different position than how I left them, or they would all be shoved up underneath the bed. And I would go to my sisters, of course you'd go to your sisters, and ask, hey, what'd you do to my toys? And they'd say, nothing. Why would I mess with your toys, Cindy? No one discussed any of these events until much later. Andrea also had her fair share of disturbing experiences. As the eldest of the five sisters, she was woken many times in the middle of the night by her siblings coming into her room, huddling with her on her bed as they sobbed their hearts out. Eight-year-old Cindy, in particular, claimed that she could hear a menacing voice in the room that she shared with April, a voice that whispered, there are seven dead soldiers in the walls over and over again. Almost immediately after moving in, all five sisters noticed their house seemed alive with spirits, although most of them were harmless, if not benevolent. They weren't always frightened of the ghosts and even befriended one of them, calling him Manny. According to Cindy, when we first moved into the house for the first two months, there was a woman that came and kissed me every night on the forehead that I thought was my mother. Her older sister Andrea added, Mom smelled like ivory soap, and this spirit smelled like flowers and fruit. Some spirits, however, were more threatening. For instance, the family was kept awake at night by a voice crying out for its mother, and at exactly 5.15 a.m., their beds would be lifted by an unseen force. The stink of rotting flesh permeated through the home, and there were even apparitions, as well as doors slamming shut on their own. Another article published in August 1977 in the Providence Journal reads, Mrs. Perrin said she awoke before dawn one morning to find an apparition by her bed, the head of an old woman hanging off to one side over an old gray dress. There was a voice reverberating, get out, get out. I'll drive you out with death and gloom. All these incidents soon proved to be too much for the parent family. And in a bid to understand what exactly was going on in their home, 
Carolyn allegedly began reading up on the history of the old Arnold estate. In her research, she purportedly came across information about how the property had at one point been owned by the same family for eight generations, with many of the members dying under unexplainable or horrible circumstances, including drownings in a nearby creek, murders, and suicides. Eight generations of one extended family lived and died in that house prior to our arrival. Andrea Perrin would later say, some of them never left. According to the WJAR News, the Black Book of Burrowville, the town's former public records book, reveals that over the course of its existence, the property had been host to two suicides by hanging, one suicide by poison, the and murder of 11-year-old Prudence Arnold by a farmhand, two drownings, and the passing of four men who froze to death in addition to other tragic losses of life. However, claims regarding Prudence Arnold's death have been highly disputed, with local historians pointing to the fact that her official death record indicated that she died in Uxbridge, Massachusetts, which meant that she didn't lose her life on the farm. Furthermore, the record states her cause of death as her throat was cut by W.E.K., initials that contradicted the name of Bill Norton, which Andrea specified in her book. Some suspect Prudence's name and horrific death was included to help make sense of the reported hauntings. The parents were forced to remain in the old Arnold estate as they had spent most of their money moving in and couldn't afford to relocate. The parents had to stay, and soon enough, the benevolent ghosts were replaced with a more violent and visible force. By far, the most sinister and the most harmful spirit in the old Arnold estate was a woman named Bathsheba Sherman. She was responsible for glass suddenly shattering and objects inexplicably being launched across the room, smashing dangerously into walls. This spirit seemed to be particularly furious at the presence of Carolyn Perrin. One night, as Carolyn sat in the living room, she suddenly felt a piercing pain in her leg. Looking down, she saw blood trickling from a small stab wound in her calf that looked as if it had been caused by a large needle. According to Andrea Perrin, whoever the spirit was, she perceived herself to be mistress of the house and she resented the competition my mother posed for that position. Bathsheba constantly tormented Carolyn all throughout the 10 years that the family lived in the old Arnold estate. The torture was both emotional and physical. Aside from being stabbed in the leg, the spirit reportedly hid Carolyn's things all the time, which made her feel as if she was going insane. She also frequently felt drained and exhausted, making her heightened emotions even worse. Yet, on the other hand, Bathsheba was reportedly kind to Roger Perrin. The website History Collection even claims that he only saw Bathsheba's sweeter side with loving caresses and innuendos. Later, the screenwriters and the director of the 2013 film, The Conjuring, would be most inspired by Bathsheba Sherman's torments and based the majority of the film's plot on the horrors that she inflicted upon the Perrin family. While she may seem like a figure created specifically for Hollywood in the big screen, Bathsheba Sherman was very much real. Born in 1812 in Rhode Island, 
Bathsheba Thayer married fellow Rhode Islander Judson Sherman in Thompson, Connecticut on March 10, 1844. The couple were fairly well off, as Judson worked tirelessly on the land while Bathsheba stayed at home, tending to their son, Herbert, who was born in 1849. Some say that the Shermans had three other children, all of whom died before they reached the age of seven. However, no census records have been found to confirm the accuracy of these claims. Still, an unofficial record of the Sherman family tree claims that Judson and Bathsheba's three other children were Julia, born in 1845, Edward, born in 1847, and George, born in 1853. It's highly possible that these kids died before the next census was carried out and therefore not recorded. But again, no hard evidence has been found that either proves or disputes their existence. Despite the quiet and unassuming lives that they led, the Shermans were often the subjects of the local rumor mill. The townspeople believed that Bathsheba was a witch or a practitioner of the dark arts, and they felt their suspicions were confirmed when a baby in her care died under mysterious circumstances. When an autopsy was performed, the medical examiner found horrifying evidence that the base of the infant's skull had been pierced with something long and sharp. Many claimed that this particular object had been a large sewing needle and it had been done as part of a satanic ritual. Naturally, the locals started gossiping even more about Bathsheba and her alleged involvement with the occult, which spurred the court to take action against her. But with no proof that she had been the one to drive the needle into the infant's head, Bathsheba was quickly cleared of all charges and declared innocent. However, this didn't stop the townspeople from believing that the baby had been used as a human sacrifice to the devil. Bathsheba died on May 25, 1885, four years after her husband Judson passed away. The internet is rife with rumors that her body literally turned to stone the minute she drew her final breath. And there are also numerous posts online claiming that she had died from an unexplainable form of paralysis that left doctors both befuddled and frightened. The true cause of Bathsheba's death may never be known. However, her grave can still be seen and visited today at the historic Baptist Cemetery in downtown Harrisville, Rhode Island. Because of the lack of evidence regarding her alleged satanist activities, some believe that Bathsheba Sherman wasn't actually the malevolent spirit haunting the old Arnold estate and the parents. As well, Bathsheba did not actually live in the old Arnold estate, though the house existed. Rather, she lived in a nearby farm on the property. According to the Providence Journal, there are people who claim that the spirit violently haunting the old Arnold estate was actually Mrs. John Arnold who had purportedly killed herself in the farm's barn in the 18th century. However, this argument is highly disputed, given the fact that historical records show that the only Mrs. John Arnold to have died in this manner had passed away in the 19th century, specifically in 1866. Moreover, she had committed suicide in her own home, situated about a mile away from the old Arnold estate. The link between the farm and the spirit of Bathsheba Sherman has never been proven. In fact, it had only been a suggestion made by famed paranormal investigator Ed and Lorraine Warren, 
Naturally, they couldn't pass up the opportunity to investigate the strange and malevolent things that were happening to the Perrin family in the old Arnold estate. In the film, Carolyn Perrin reached out herself to the famed paranormal investigators to ask them to look into strange occurrences in the family's home. In real life, though, it was a family friend who contacted the Warrens, who, at the time, were working on a case in nearby Connecticut. We never actually contacted the Warrens. Our friend, Barbara, went to see them in Putnam because they did things all around the area. They were informed about us, recalled Andrea Perrin. The Warrens reportedly made multiple trips to the property over the 10 years that the family lived there. Unlike in the film, though, they weren't of much help. For instance, the hide and clap game a chilling scene from The Conjuring that saw Lily Taylor as Carolyn Perrin being tormented by a spirit was allegedly much worse in real life. The hide and clap game was based on the games of hide and seek played by the daughters in real life. The horrible incident playing hide and seek occurred about six months after they moved into the old Arnold estate when the young Cindy decided she would hide in the woodshed. In order to remain unfound by her searching sisters, she climbed into a wood box with a simple wood panel for a lid. Yet, reportedly, when she pulled the panel over top, she found she couldn't move it back off. Apparently, Cindy started screaming and shoving against the lid. She began panicking when it wouldn't budge. After 20 minutes of her terrified that she would suffocate in the box, her sister Nancy found her and easily lifted off the lid, freeing the hysterical Cindy. After hearing about the family's experiences, Ed and Lorraine suggested it was the spirit of Bathsheba Sherman who was haunting the parents. Carolyn had shared how she had been stabbed with a needle-like tool, and the Warrens pointed out the fact that Bathsheba had been accused of doing the same thing to a child while she had still been alive. The Warrens were also said to have claimed that Bathsheba Sherman had murdered her daughter as a sacrifice to Satan, establishing black rituals before taking her own life in a bid to remain on the property to haunt it forever. They also said that she had hung herself, which was why Carolyn Perrin often saw apparitions of a woman with a noose around her neck. In the Conjuring film, the Warrens managed to successfully remove the spirit of Bathsheba from the home, saving the lives of Carolyn and April Perrin in the process. But the real life Ed and Lorraine Warren weren't that helpful. During one of their visits, they reportedly conducted a seance, accompanied by a priest and a medium, in an attempt to communicate with the spirits that had been tormenting the Perrin family. In the middle of the ritual, Karen allegedly became possessed by the spirit of Bathsheba, speaking in tongues and levitating. The five Perrin girls were banned from the seance. However, Andrea claimed to have secretly witnessed it. Writing in her memoir, I thought I was going to pass out, my mother began to speak a language not of this world in a voice not her own. Her chair levitated and she was thrown across the room. Andrea's younger sister, Cindy, had also been hiding with her in order to watch the events unfold. She recalled the incident as dreadful, saying that the Warrens tried to help, but we essentially found things got worse around them. Concerned for his wife's mental stability, Roger Perrin threw the Warrens out and banned them from investigating the hauntings any further. A 77-year-old Roger Perrin later recalled, she was possessed. Her entire body was distorted 
and it lasted several hours until they de-demonized her, and then I threw the Warrens out. The family's torment continued until finally, in 1980, Roger and Carolyn were able to sell the old Arnold estate, settling in Georgia to rebuild their lives and never look back. Throughout those five years, though, the five girls did all that they could to escape the hauntings. However, one of the later owners of the old Arnold estate, a woman named Norma Sutcliffe, adamantly disagrees with the parents. She had purchased the property in 1987 and to this day claims that she has not been haunted, neither by the malevolent Bathsheba nor the benevolent spirits that the family claimed preyed on them. Norma had been living on the property when The Conjuring was released and even sued the film for damages caused by fans who frequently trespassed on the property. In 2019, the old Arnold estate was once again put on the real estate market and was purchased by Corey Heinzen and his wife, Jennifer. Unlike the previous owner, the couple claimed that they often experienced paranormal activity, including faraway footsteps and doors slamming. However, none of their ghostly encounters came close to what the parent family had experienced in the 1970s. Unlike the parents and Norma Sutcliffe, Corey and Jennifer have welcomed the spirits haunting the old Arnold estate with open arms. When they moved in, they claimed to have slept in the small wing of the home for the first four months, saying they didn't want to overstep their boundaries with the supernatural. When they finally opened the door between the main house and the small wing, though, they were awakened by a mysterious, shadowy figure. Corey recalled, It was just peeking around the door, like this, all black, just looking at us. I remember looking at it and Jennifer was like, What the hell is that? I said, That's a shadow figure, and it moved real fast. She said, Awesome, and we high-fived each other. His wife, Jennifer, added, it wasn't scary. It wasn't an evil presence. We were just excited. Even with the Heinzens asserting the presence of the supernatural in the old Arnold estate, there are still many who doubt its existence. Despite their critics, though, the parents remain adamant that their story is true. In an interview with USA Today, Andrea said, Both my mother and I would just as soon swallow our tongue than tell a lie. People are free to believe whatever they want to believe but I know what we experienced. Lorraine claims to still feel traumatized by the events that transpired in the old Arnold estate, saying that the things that went on there were just so incredibly frightening. It still affects me to talk about it today. that lived in that home was the Perrin family and the eldest daughter featured in the movie Andrea is here with us on San Antonio living this morning she is the author of the book house of darkness house of light it's very nice to see you it's lovely to see you again oh, we it, were introduced at yes. the black swan yes it was and delightful thank you so much to Joanne from the yes. black swan in for bringing us together uh, is it hard for you to watch little clips from the movie like that? Well, no, because I've seen it so many times now. The week that the film opened between my trip to Hollywood and then to Rhode Island, then New York, then Atlanta, mm -hmm. I've seen it so many times that, uh, but the first time that I saw it, all I did was cry. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's so interesting. So many people saw this movie, and a lot of time we're watching horror movies, and we're like, oh, you know, that is a dream of Hollywood. That was your life, but worse, right? 
they really had to tone it down for the film. Um, James, James Wan, the director, mm -hmm. was um, shooting for a PG-13 rating. He wanted to bring this story to as many people as he could. Mm -hmm. And when he got the R rating, I was with him, and he hit the roof. We had to pull him back down. And he, sa and he said to the MPAA, what do I have to take out of the film in order to get a PG-13? And they said, there's nothing you can remove. It's just too scary. And they had already toned it down so much that he was shocked. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it worked out well. And God knows now that it's out on DVD, the, all the teenagers are seeing it. Yeah. So. Oh, boy. It, it's so it's crazy to have seen that movie <clears throat> and then to have met you. Let's go back to the year you and your family moved into the farmhouse. Mm -hmm. uh, wa walking in through the front door, how, how, how much time passed before you knew that something was different about this house? About five minutes. <laughs> Wow, wow. What was the first thing that happened that clued you in? Well, we bought the house in December of 1970, but my mother refused to move at Christmas. Imagine that. <laughs> so we moved in the first week of January 1971 in the middle of a snowstorm, swirling ice storm. Mm -hmm. And my dad, it was a whole caravan and it was chaos, of course, moving days tend to be. Um, but my dad handed me a large box off the back of the truck and said, take this to your mother in the kitchen. So I went through the parlor door, and I had to walk the entire length of the house to get to the kitchen and the pantry, and it was more than 110 feet long. Mm -hmm. So I walked into the dining room, and I saw an oddly dressed man in the corner of the dining room. And I greeted him because I was a polite child. I said, good morning. And he didn't respond to me. His focus was entirely on the elder gentleman who was moving out of the house who had sold it to mm -hmm. us. And uh, so I kept going. And I walked in the kitchen and said, Mom, who's that other man with Mr. Kenyon in the dining room? She said, there is no other man in the dining room. And then Nancy came in, Christine came in, Cindy came in, and the last sister came in and said, that man in the dining room just disappeared. So immediately you knew that something was up with the house. I've got a couple of pictures to share. First, the house uh, when you guys moved in. It, it looks like a, a beautiful farmhouse, a, a, a typical setting of a farm. And then we've got a picture of your mother in front of uh, the fireplace mm -hmm. there. When you moved into this house, did your parents have any idea about the history? whatsoever? No, of course we knew it was extensive. The mm -hmm. house as it is now was completed in 1736, 40 years before the beginning of the Revolutionary War. So it is truly a colonial home. Mm -hmm. And it and actually it took years to build the house as it is because it started as a four square mm -hmm. and then grew as, you know, families and eight generations of one extended family lived and died in that house and many of them never left. When you are in the house and you're sleeping, it's bedtime, you're with your sisters, you guys are all on that top floor, and each of you are seeing different things, you're hearing different things, did you mm. immediately talk to each other about what you saw or did you keep it in? The first night or two that we were in the house, of course you're adjusting to a new environment. Um, I thought that the sound that I was hearing was wind in the eaves, mm -hmm. but that wasn't the case at all. And then my darling little sister Cindy crawled into bed with me. She said, Annie, can I sleep with you? I said, sure. I pulled the quilt back and let her in. She snuggled up real close and she said, I hear voices in my room. And they're all talking at once, but they're all saying the same thing. And I asked her, what are they saying? And she said, there are seven dead soldiers buried in the wall. 
What, what about the history of the house? What were you able to find out about the house uh, over, over the last years of your life? I mean, I know you didn't know as much while you were there, but later in life, what did you find out? My mother actually did extensive research. My mother is, at heart, an historian, mm -hmm. and she did extensive research on the house. Uh, she found out that Mrs. John Arnold hung herself in the barn when she was 93 years old. We found out that there were uh, a couple of other hangings in the house as well, uh, women that had claimed their own lives. Bathsheba Sherman lived in the house. She was accused mm -hmm. of, uh, and she was acquitted. Well, actually, it never even went to trial. She, it was dismissed from an inquest. Mm -hmm. But she had a child, an infant in her care that died, and they found that a needle had Im been impaled at the base of its skull and mm -hmm. it had died of convulsions. So even though she was exonerated, from that at the inquest in the court of public opinion the accusation stuck and she was tried and convicted and lived a miserable life um, for her entire life she lived to be in her 70s which was old for her time and it never it that black cloud hung over her in life and after death so you got to the point where all these spirits were <coughs> really making it a very scary place to live. And in the movie, you saw that the Warrens came into play and they came to the house. Did that happen in real life? Yes, it did, actually. They didn't move in with us, as was portrayed in the film, and there was no exorcism conducted in the house. A priest came with them. They decided that it was important that my mother was oppressed mm -hmm. by a spirit. And my mother was changing radically, dramatically, even though it was gradually over a period of time she began dressing in vintage clothing. She started using archaic language like yeoman. You know, people don't use that word to describe the menfolk in town. Um, and uh, we thought it was because she was immersed in the history mm -hmm. of the place. And we did pay attention to it, all of us did, because we felt like our mother was slipping away from us in, in some respects. And I stepped in to the role of, you know, I was parentified at a mm -hmm. young age. I needed to take care of my sisters. And my mom was just immersed in the history of the house and learning everything that she could. Um, when the Warrens came, it was um, right around this time in 1973, mm -hmm. and they conducted an investigation over a period of about a year and a half, which culminated in a seance gone horribly wrong. What happened during that seance? It was far more intense than anything that they could have portrayed on film. Um, it did not happen in the cellar. It happened in the dining room. And I knew from that moment, I was never one to believe in demons. I knew evil existed. but uh, And I still don't know exactly what a demon is. But I will tell you that they brought a priest and a medium with them to the house, a full technical crew that were trying to film this event, mm -hmm. and um, they inadvertently opened a door that they could not close. The medium invited the spirits in, and with them came something which attacked my mother. Um, I don't, if she was possessed, it was for a brief period of time, but I saw it all with my own eyes, and what I know is that whatever attacked her was not of this world. It spoke through her in a language that does not exist on this planet. 
and it levitated her in the chair that she was in and within a split second when it was done curling her body into a ball you would have expected to hear bones breaking it threw her into the adjacent parlor about 20 feet away in literally a split second you saw this how old were I you 15 15 years old documented yeah. in the warren files mm -hmm. as well there were several people who saw this all yes. happen what happened in the house after that night did things get worse Whatever was allowed in that night subdued the spirits. They were very, very quiet for a long time afterwards, several months, and my mother kept wasting away. You saw the photograph of her in front of the um, fireplace. Mm -hmm. I mean, she was just so frail. My mother moved in there as, you know, a model material woman, just strikingly beautiful, and she just literally wasted away. She lost so much weight. She changed inexorably in ways that were shocking. And then one night she came out into the parlor and the dining room had been shut down for the night, but she heard voices and she turned and she saw an entire family having dinner <coughs> in the dining room at a table that was not our own. Uh, a woman was cooking in front of a fireplace that had been sealed shut for more than a hundred years. She told her children to go take their seats at the, on the benches at the table and two men were sitting on the other side. She was there and they were here. And one of them looked into the parlor and made eye contact with my mother and then nudged the man beside him and pointed her out and she was the ghost. Wow. wow. That's when she understood that we were living in a portal cleverly disguised as a farmhouse. And that's when she fought her way back to us. The book is called House of Darkness, House of Light, because although you experienced some very crazy and unnerving times, you also had the best time of your life in that house. Yeah. Tell me about some of the good times. Oh, there were so many. And that's why the title is what it is. My mother titled the trilogy. And she said, well, it was both. It was both, and I often say it was the best decade of my life because from the age of 12, when I first saw a full-body apparition, I knew there is something beyond our mortal existence. I'm still not quite sure what it is, but I do know that it exists, and therefore the vessel is what becomes ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Our soul and our spirit, I truly believe, moves on. And so I have been able to live a fully liberated life, free of fear of death. And when you think about how many people fail to live fully because of their fear of death, I think that it was a true gift to me. And when you're touched by spirit, it's a gift that you can never return. Mm -hmm. You can turn your back on it and pretend that it didn't happen, or you can embrace it and accept it and garner from it what can give you the freedom to live your life in a victorious way. Mm -hmm. And that's what I've done.